Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. Welcome to the Victim Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who've experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week, we are talking about non-reported cases of sexual assault. My name is Emily Mitchell. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center of Central Florida. With me today, I have Melissa Ashton. Melissa uses she, her pronouns, has been in the field of victim services since 2001, and she began her career primarily supporting survivors of domestic violence and sexual violence through the criminal justice system. Melissa also served as a campus-based advocate for nearly 10 years, where she worked with survivors of all types of crimes. Through her work at the Florida Council Against Sexual Violence, Melissa has worked with survivors on their civil legal needs under the LAV grant, and has also provided technical assistance to Florida advocates, law enforcement, and prosecutors. She is currently the Director of Programs, and in this role, provides training and technical assistance to Florida's 31 certified sexual assault programs, including the BSC, around the state. Melissa also works on PREA, or the Prison Rape Elimination Act, issues, and continues to train advocates. In her free time, Melissa enjoys spending time with her family and training for her next race. So, Melissa, thank you so, so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. And I also have returning Rhonda Wilson. So, Rhonda uses she, her pronouns, and has been a part of the VSC team for over 12 years. She has three graduate degrees, a Master of Human Services, an MBA, and a Master in Administration of Justice and Security. Rhonda has over 30 years of experience in criminal and military justice. She served in the U.S. Navy for 20 years. After retiring from the Navy, Rhonda worked as the director of a residential reentry center for inmates transitioning from federal prisons. Rhonda's goal is to engage the entire community in activities that prevent sexual assault and crime. So Rhonda, thank you as well for coming back onto the podcast. We're excited to have you. Thank you for having me again, Emily. And as a really brief introduction, sexual assault is one of the most underreported crimes ever. And today we are going to chat about the many barriers survivors may face when it comes to reporting, the different options survivors have, and the resources available to them, whether or not they want to report, and why it is important for survivors to make choices that are right for them on their healing journey. So with that, I'd like to just throw it out there to kind of define 
what exactly is a non-reported case of sexual assault? A non-reported case is when an individual makes the decision that they do not want to report it to the police. And it's that person's right to make that decision. Uh, it can always be, you know, there's always these different reasons not to, but we can go into that in, in later on and why individuals do not want to report it. Absolutely. And um, I also was kind of curious, you know, we said that it's one of the most unreported crimes, but what is the percentage of sexual assaults that are not reported? Approximately 69% of the sexual assaults are not reported to the police. Wow. Yeah, that, I think that that's really staggering. Um, and what do we exactly mean by reports? Is it reporting specifically to the police? What we mean by report is that they actually talk to somebody in law enforcement and they make a report and they tell the investigating officer or the police officer uh, what happened in details of, of, what, of, of the sexual assault. Now, if they don't report it, then that's okay because that's everybody's right not to report it. But that's what's considered a report case, a reported case, and what a non-reported case is. So when you say law enforcement, it could be anyone like a detective or a patrol yes. officer or something like that? Patrol officer, a deputy. Um, so I'm going to be using police throughout the, the podcast so that, you know, everybody understands who I'm talking about. Absolutely. And you mentioned that there are a lot of reasons why survivors choose not to report. So right. what are some of those reasons why someone may decide not to report the sexual assault to the police? There, there are several reasons of what I've seen. Uh, some of it could be like, they feel like that the rape was a personal matter. Uh, they don't want to relive the trauma because they have to tell their story numerous times to different individuals. Their fear of not being believed, especially by police and by family members and by friends. Um, they fear that the perpetrator will, be held, will not be held accountable for their actions. Um, sometimes the criminal justice system can be intimidating and sometimes individuals are just not willing to, to go through that process. A lot of times it's a distrust of the police. Um, they're feel of the retaliation of the perpetrator or the offender. Um, they self blame themselves for the, the circumstance that surrounds the sexual assault. And they just want to forget that it ever happened. They just want to move forward and forget that it ever happened. Yeah, Rhonda, I think you hit on some really high points there as to why survivors don't report. I think the being believed one is the main one that survivors fear. No one's going to believe me. Maybe the perpetrator said that to them during the assault. Um, maybe it was a friend and they feel like they have some responsibility in the situation. And if they do report, you know, what happens to their circle of friends um, being blamed by law enforcement or, you know, those questions that lead to victim blaming and feeling even more blamed based on, you know, those questions that are asked of them. And it also a lot of times depends on who the perpetrator is. Is it their employer? Could they lose their job? Is it their landlord? Could they lose their housing? Um, all of these factors play into why survivors don't report. And another one is, you know, when survivors experience an assault, they lose that control. That control is taken away from them. So then they're thrust into another system where they don't have control 
over what's happening next. They don't, you know, trying to predict and prepare for a system that you don't know a lot about can be really intimidating. And I think for a, a lot of survivors, um, as you mentioned, that that feeling of wanting to move on, you know, they need to focus on their basic needs. And right now, you know, reporting would take too much energy away from their medical needs or their day-to-day needs. um, And they just can't deal with another thing right now. Absolutely. And I appreciate you both kind of sharing all these different barriers. It's obviously really overwhelming or can be overwhelming for a survivor to make that choice. Um, You mentioned too, that it could have been, for example, a friend. And I always like to mention in my trainings that eight out of 10 times, uh, it is the the perpetrator is someone that the survivor actually knows. Um, So that makes sense that that could also be a barrier to reporting. And you also mentioned, you brought up the the word control, because as we talk about a lot on this podcast, that this uh, crime is really a crime of power and control. So when it comes to reporting, do you think that we as a society kind of pressure survivors into reporting this to the police? Oh, absolutely. One of the questions is, why aren't you reporting this? And and it shouldn't be like that. That's that's kind of, you know, cornering that individual, the survivor, into trying to make a decision right now, this second, when they really can't make that decision, they rather sit back and try to process that. Would you agree, Melissa? I would. I think um, as a society, we're hardwired to believe that if a crime really occurred, that you report to law enforcement. Um, And if it didn't, you you don't. So we don't really leave a whole lot of room for other options or other possibilities of what a survivor may be dealing with. And this places the responsibility on the survivor to prove that they were a victim. Mm -hmm. Um, And saying things like, I would, or, or you should, Mm-hmm. When we really don't know how we would respond in that situation. I'm so glad you brought that up because, yeah, I think I love the way that you said to have to prove that you're a victim when someone already has gone through probably one of the worst things um, they'll ever go through. And then they have to prove that it happened. Um, that could be really, really just heartbreaking. In addition to that, do you think that there's this idea of society being like, it's kind of your responsibility to make sure this doesn't happen to someone else. Do you hear that a lot as far as a pressure to report? Absolutely. It is. And, and I'm I'm glad you asked that question. That's a really good question. Um, As a society, we need to recognize that not every survivor responds the same to trauma and we need to allow them time and space to process their trauma and determine what they need to focus their energies on in order to heal. The survivor should not focus um, their healing on solely, you know, being the one responsible for holding that perpetrator accountable. And they shouldn't be responsible for proving their victimhood or catching criminals. They should be responsible for taking care of their self and making sure they're able to heal and function um, from a trauma. Absolutely. I'm really glad that you, that you mentioned that. And, and again, since this is about, you know, power and control, us kind of pushing them into doing this reporting process, which is part of some people's healing journey, but not everyone's, it could be kind of pulling away that power once again, right? And it can be for, you know, it's not everyone's healing journey. And we like to say that survivors are the experts of that, 
and they should be in charge of that for sure. Um, but at the same time, sometimes there is mandated reporting. So what is a mandated reporter and when does a sexual assault need to be reported in the state of Florida? Well, mandated reporting means if you're under the age of 18 and you call our hotline or you talk to an adult about somebody, you know, sexually abusing you or you had sexual assault, we are required by law to report that to DCF. All right. And so anybody under the age of 18, we have to do that. 18 and older, you have, that is your right, whether you want to report it or not. And, and also I had a question. So, so this would have to be reported to the D, to DCF, not to the police. Is that correct? Well, we report, we automatically report to DCF if we believe that law, uh, the police is not involved, but it has to be reported, even though law, uh, within our agency here in central Florida, uh, even though we might meet with the client or meet with the survivor and they're under the age, age of 18, we still call it in and report it whether we th- believe that law, uh, the police has reported it or not. We just want to make sure all bases are covered and then make sure that it's reported because if that child needs to be removed from that home, DCF needs to know about that. I understand. Okay, so whether or not we know if it's already been reported by another entity, um, at the end of the day, it's our duty to report it to DCF. And from what I understand, isn't everyone a mandated reporter reporter in the state of Florida yeah that's surprising because a lot of times we hear like oh if you're a teacher if you're a you know healthcare provider but in the state of Florida I think everyone is a mandated reporter of Mm -hmm. sexual abuse yes um, which is sexual assault happening to uh children anyone younger than 18 is there anyone else that um like we have to would have to report a, a sexual assault Absolutely. Vulnerable adults. Absolutely. Persons with uh, identified disabilities. We have to report that to DCF also. Oh, and you would report that to DCF, not to the police. Okay. Understood. Um, So with that, when a survivor is not a child or vulnerable adult, um, is an advocate a confidential resource for them? Yes. And why is that important? It's important that we have confidentiality in the state of, well, in the state of Florida, we have that confidentiality of the the Florida statute 960, chapter 960, which mandates that uh, non-reporting victims of sexual battery are entitled to the same level as reporting victims, including the collection storage of forensic evidence uh, kits. Um, In our counties, the sheriff's office stores the the non-report kits. So that they, they store them for as long as they need them as of right now. Yeah, um, I just wanted to piggyback off of a little of what Rhonda said there. Um, and yeah, under Florida statute, sexual assault um, advocates are confidential at rape crisis centers. So it, it's really important, I think, to get that out there to folks so that they understand that, you know, we do have law enforcement based advocates. We have state attorney based advocates. They do not um, enjoy the same confidentiality and privilege that rape crisis center advocates do in the state of Florida. And I, that's critical for folks to know so that when they are ready to report, they can rep- they can maybe talk through some ideas with someone who is confidential um, versus someone who, who is not. 
And, and we have, you know, the community victim advocates, which in our in our agency here in, in Central Florida, the Victim Service Center, we our main focus is the survivor. That's who we care about, and that's who we are there to protect and 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 have them process along with us on their journey. We're the ones that that will assist them along the way in in the hope uh, the journey and on the healing process. I'm so glad that that law exists um, because obviously um, having that confidential resource can be really integral for someone's healing journey, someone that they can talk to where that won't be shared unless they um, give consent to share that information, right? And in what cases would a survivor want to consent to share the information that they spoke with between an advocate and themselves? Okay. I'm glad you asked that. Uh, we have to get a written consent to disclose, which is a release of information. Uh, if we, if there's a suspicion of the physical, sexual, or emotional abuse of a child, an elderly person, or a, dis- a disabled adult, you know, we have to, it won't be, the confidentiality won't be protected on that because we have to, because we know the mandate reporting. If there's a threat to harm oneself or harm others, the confidentiality is not protected. Uh, if the court order is subpoena of their records, it's not, you know, it's not covered. Um, research audits and program evaluations, it's, it's not protected, but they do have to sign that they would not repeat anything of any of any uh, files or, or if they recognize anybody in our, you know, clientele. And if anyone who does not work for a certified rate crisis center, it's not, the confidentiality is not protected as Melissa said, well ago. Absolutely. And is there ever a time where it would make sense where uh, a survivor wants the information to be released, like in a court of law or something, or? Well, if it's court ordered, a lot, from my experience, what I've had has happened probably about two times since I've been at the Victim Service Center is that the judge that's presiding over the case We'll do an in-camera review of the file, and then he or she will make that decision whether he or she will disclose it to the defense attorney or to the prosecutor. I'm not an attorney, and I certainly don't claim to be, but I've heard it explained from by attorneys before to survivors that the privilege is theirs. The privilege lies with the survivor. Mm-hmm. So they are the ones to determine when um, they are willing to give up that privilege and have you know an advocate speak on their behalf. That's awesome. Thank you for mm-hmm. shedding light on that. So I also wanted to ask you know a little bit more about the forensic exam or the rape kit that you were mentioning, uh, Rhonda. So we talked a lot about how there's so many different barriers as to why survivors do not report. And with that, we we have this thing called a forensic exam, and we'll get to more of what exactly that looks like. But essentially, I wanted to ask, can survivors still be entitled to a free forensic exam or rape kit, which is within 120 hours of a sexual assault occurring, if they choose not to report? Yes, they get absolutely. It's a it's a free uh, forensic collection exam for anybody who says that they were sexually assaulted within the 120 hours. Absolutely. It's totally free. And why is it important 
that this option exists for survivors, whether or not they want to report in that moment? If they don't want to report, they, at least they have time to think about it. The, the importance of the forensic collection is preserving the evidence. And once that, that's preserved, then the, then, the, then the survivor has as much time as, as they want, up to about seven to eight years in, in the state of Florida to report it. But at least the, the evidence is preserved. That's, that's what's important. Because a lot of times at that moment in time, especially on non-reports, the survivor is not really, is not ready to deal with the police or they're not ready to go down that road yet. And they need time to be able to, you know, sleep on it, uh, process it because they're exhausted from all the, you know, from sexual assault. And, and, it, and it brings trauma with, all, with, you know, on the body of the individual, psychologically and physically. Absolutely. Melissa, would you agree that, you know, having this option is so integral for a survivor? It is. And it was it was passed in Florida in 2007. So and I know that we've had lots of non-reporting um, folks, you know, convert their kits to reporting because they're given that time and space. That evidence is there. They're ready to move forward with their case. The evidence has been preserved. So, you know, the law enforcement uh, can investigate. Prosecutors can prosecute. So it, it really gives survivors another critical option in a time when they're trying to deal with so much to you know, take the time that they need to process the events that have happened and then to make that decision that is, that is right for them. Hey, and I wanna piggyback on that, what Melissa said. You know, we were talking about non-reports converted over to reports. In our agency, I, I look back about three years from October, 2018 to October, 2021. And I pulled our cases and found out that we had, we had a 1,105 cases that we collected evidence on. Out of that, 126 were non-reports, which was 11%. But what's really nice is out of that 126, 21 converted over. So that was 17% of those non-reports were converted over to reports. That's incredible. Um, it shows again that, you know, um, having as many options as possible and knowing the options for survivors is really what being survivor focused is all about, right? So again, having the, the option to, of choice is super, super empowering. And I think that that's great that we have this option of, hey, you only have 120 hours after a sexual assault occurs because that's just how DNA evidence collection works. But you don't have to decide in this moment if you want to go down the path of reporting. You can decide that later on. Um, so I think that that's really comforting or could be comforting for a lot of people um, so that they can do what's best for them. I also wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, Rhonda, if you wanted to touch on this Florida statute about non-reported cases being entitled to the same level of care as reported cases, why is that important that that statute exists? It's, it's important because it's a choice for an individual or it's a choice for a survivor. Um, you know, like we said before, not everybody wants to come forward. And we right now, you know, nationwide is 69% of individuals, you know, 69% will not report it. But we need to be able to collect the evidence. And the statute's in place for that reason so that survivors would come forward. 
and at least get the evidence collected. And then later on, make that decision whether they want to move forward with that or not. Yeah, essentially, you will be receiving the same level of attention and care. Um, the victim advocate will be there. The, the same nurse we'll talk a little bit about soon as well. Whether or not you choose to want to report, it's the same case. It's the same process. Yes. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that process. So what is typically involved in the forensic exam? What's involved is um, our, our victim advocates, crisis counselors, will, will sit down and talk to the survivor and explain the process. And what the process is, they're going to explain that the nurse is going to ask you very direct questions and how you answer it is indirectly going to tell where the, the, the sexual assault nurse examiner is going to look on your body to search for evidence. And that's what she's there for is to collect the evidence from your body because your body is technically considered a crime scene. So she needs to have the guidance of being able to collect the evidence from the survivor's body. And what she does is she uses a swab uh, for females. It's a pelvic exam. Um, she'll collect evidence there. Uh, she'll collect evidence from the clothing. She'll bag up the clothing. Uh, she will also make sure she tags everything, make sure she, you know, all the evidence is dry before she, she packages it up. And then she makes sure she, that, that evidence never leaves her sight during the, during the collection, during the drying, during the packaging. And then she stores it in a lock locker, in a locked locker, so that chain of custody is not broken. And that law enforcement will come and pick up the evidence from the facility. Okay, so that kind of involves the chain of custody that we were talking about there to make sure that the evidence is preserved and yes. able to be used um, if the person chooses to report or not. Um, I had a quick question as well. Um, throughout the process, do survivors have to do all of the forensic exam? Can they choose to be like, hey, I don't want to do that, but I'll do this? Sure, it's an option. A survivor can do all the all the forensic collection exam. They can do partial, or they don't have to do it at all. It's it's up to that. It, that's that's their option. That's their choice. Absolutely. And speaking of that choice, um, how can an advocate help a survivor decide whether or not to get a forensic exam? So. I heard you kind of talking a little bit about they can share the process and things like that. Can someone like call our helpline and, you know, check in on what that is and how can an advocate really assist with that? What we do is we educate the survivor or the caller that's, that's calling our, our helpline. And we, we explain to them what the process is. We lay it all out there for them step-by-step step, what to expect, approximately how long it would take. And then we let the survivor make that decision. Because it can be a few hours, can't it? Yes, it can be anywhere from a couple hours to three to four hours. It's depending, you know, when we can get the survivor in, we get the sexual assault nurse examiner there, advocate there, and we all meet up and we go through the process of, of collecting the evidence. And we talked a lot about how, like, there are certain body parts, obviously, and um, involved in taking the clothing and things like that. Um, so I can imagine, can this be rather triggering for a survivor who's just been um, experienced a sexual assault? We call it an acute case when it's within 120 hours. So can it be kind of triggering for them? It can be triggering, but you know what? We will take our time with that survivor. If the survivor says stop, 
we will stop until they're ready to take a breath or they're ready to proceed or if they're ready to stop altogether. It's the option is is all theirs. We put the ball in their court and they make all the decisions along the way. Yeah. And, and that kind of leads me to this other point where essentially yeah, getting the survivor's consent for the exam. Um, so if they are a minor, um, who signs off on the consent? What happens with us is that if we have a, a minor involved, usually we have a parent or a legal guardian with them and then they will sign off on it. But the bottom line is this, even though that the the legal guardian or the parent will sign off on it, it's still up to the minor to decide whether they want to go through the collection or not. If they do not want to, the sexual assault, sexual assault nurse examiner will not proceed. Absolutely. It's all about the option and the choice. Yeah. Absolutely. And I know that it's so integral that we do get their, you know, written consent. And is that consent kind of like revisited with the same nurse as they keep going through the process? We, we always, I know with the sayings or with their sexual assault nurse examiners, they always ask, you know, I'm going to do this. Are you okay with this? You know, and they always ask, they, they make sure that the survivor is as comfortable as possible throughout the process. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of consent, um, as the education coordinator, I talk a lot about consent in my trainings to help prevent sexual assault. And we talk a little bit about alcohol and how alcohol removes your ability to consent. So with that, how does alcohol ever play a factor in a survivor's ability to consent to a forensic exam? Yeah. So I know, so I worked as a college campus based advocate for almost 10 years. And I mean, as everyone knows, alcohol is definitely on the scene of most college campuses and is often involved in sexual assaults. Um, I think a lot of times survivors think maybe they were drugged and oftentimes it's just the alcohol um, that has affected their ability to remember or, you know, put things together. So it it definitely plays a a huge role in sexual assaults. Now with their ability to consent, we did have cases again, when I was at um, the university that, you know, survivors were clearly still too intoxicated to give consent for an exam. And often what we do, we would do in those cases is wait until, you know, they were able to provide that consent, you know, provide them with, you know, comfort, making them comfortable until, you know, they were at a point where we all felt that uh, they could consent to the exam. That makes a lot of sense because again, it's so important to always get consent for that, but also just the sensitivity of the issue of this being such an acute case, right? We want to make sure that the survivor is well-informed about exactly what the process is going to be, that they're comfortable. um, And it makes sense that if alcohol is involved, that they wouldn't be able to consent until, you know, some time has passed or something like that. So I appreciate you shedding light on that, Melissa. And you, you mentioned, you know, your experience working on a college campus and things like that. I wanted to ask um, either you, Melissa, or you, Rhonda, whoever would like to jump in. Are there any case studies that you wanted to talk a little bit about? Well, I, yeah, I, I do. Um, I've had some cases in, in the past where, you know, the person's trying to decide whether they want to report or non-report, and I laid out all the options to that survivor. And 
one of their, their concerns was, and Melissa brought this up earlier too, but you know, the, re the reasons that they're, they're trying to decide whether they want to report or not is because if they report it, how's that going to affect them in, in, in their, in their family and their friends? Like, you know, I had cases where the, uh, the survivor says, I can't report this. That's my brother-in-law. You know, he's the one that did this, you know, how my, how's my sister going to handle that? How are we going to handle this on holidays and, you know, things like that. And I've had cases where I, I, I don't know whether I want to report this or not because that's my boss's boyfriend, you know, and I, and I work for her and, you know, there's, it's, it's, it can be tricky. And, you know, and that's the reason why, like with these non, you know, individuals who are survivors who want to be not non-report, they have to have time to really think it through because of, of what's going to happen once that comes out. Because once that comes out, it's, there's no taking it back. You know, it's, it's out there in the family, you know, family and friends are going to know if the survivor tells them about that, because it's certainly not going to hear it from a certified rate crisis center that this is happening. So it's, there's a lot of decisions that an, uh, a survivor has to make, you know, before they decide they want to report it. Yeah, and I, I would just echo what Rhonda said. Um, it's not as simple as just deciding to report or not for survivors. They typically have lots of layers of things that they have to look at and feel through in order to decide what's the best decision for them. And it takes a lot of energy. It does to go through the process and to be involved with the different systems and navigate those systems. And a lot of time, you know, going back to law enforcement, going back to the state attorney's office. And some people just don't have that kind of energy to be putting into something like that. They need to focus that inwardly on themselves to take care of themselves and to make sure that they're healing. So it's, it's not as simple as people, I think, want to make it out to be. Exactly. And, you know, and family members and friends don't realize what they're saying to the survivor can be can be harmful. You know, like, for example, like what, you know, I mean, we talked about this. Why won't you report to the police? Uh, you know, like think about this with 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 the case with the brother in law, you know, what family, you know, family member probably say, you probably brought this on yourself or he wouldn't do that to you, you know, or it's your fault or it's been so, you know, you know, you wanted it or I don't believe you, you know, and those are very harmful sayings to survivors, very harmful, you know, and it's, it's, or if you weren't, you know, using drugs or alcohol, you know, you, you wouldn't have been raped. I mean, these are very, very common sayings that blames survivors and and you can see why they wouldn't want to report it i mean you know there's a lot to really process and it's in like melissa said it's very exhausting for a survivor very exhausting yeah and when you were talking about family's response there's also the friends i remember more than on one more than one occasion i had you know a sorority member come and you know talk about options and in one case in particular, she decided to report and move forward. And then her entire sorority turned against her. Everyone that she thought were her friends that were there to support her absolutely did not stand by her. Um, and she felt isolated and like she, she had lost more than, you know, just, you know, just one or two friends. She lost her whole, what she considered her family on campus and her community. So it's, 
it's a lot about weighing, weighing, you know, options for survivors and possible unforeseen consequences. Um, and the majority of students I worked with when I was on campus chose not to report because of a lot of these um, things that they were going to have to navigate as a result of reporting. And not reporting just made, made it simpler and they could focus that on themselves and not have to look at all of these exterior stressors that would just be magnified if they did report. And, and to add on to that, what Melissa was saying, I mean, think about this, you know, when they reported the impact of the victim blaming, I mean, this could, this to the survivor, I mean, the survivor could go, could go into depression, substance abuse, low self-esteem, intimate issues, uh, not reaching out for services because they think that, that, that they can, you know, work it out by themselves. Uh, likelihood of becoming re-victimized, isolation, big timing. I mean, that's a great example of being isolated. Absolutely. I'm glad that you brought up kind of the effects that victim blaming can have on survivors. And I really appreciate that, um, you know, we're talking about how we, you know, the examples of being a not a good supporter, I should say, and kind of showing how integral uh, a support system can be. So with that, um, you know, we mentioned that telling a survivor that they must report is harmful because it's taking away their power and it might not be the right path for them. They're weighing all these different options. What are other things that we should avoid saying to someone who discloses their story of sexual violence. And I know we highlighted some, but if you have some general tips for anyone listening of what we shouldn't say. The top one on my list is always avoid the why questions. Don't, don't start a question with why that just automatically lends itself to victim blaming. Um, you know, try to reframe a question um, so you were telling me this, tell me more about this. How are you feeling? Tell me about your thought process. More of those kinds of approaches are going to, you know, give you, make the survivor feel supported and give you more information than, you know, those why questions will shut down a survivor because they immediately feel like, oh, well, this person is being judgmental and they're blaming me. So just avoid the why questions, um, approach it with a non-judgmental attitude, a place of support um, is what, is what I suggest. And I like to add on to that. What Melissa said, you'd be surprised how many, uh, friends or family call our helpline to ask, how can we help them? You know, you should be able to call your local help, help, uh, crisis helpline to find out, you know, what can we do? You know, what services we offer, you know, you know, and, and present it to the survivor and then let him or her make that decision whether they want to reach out to us. That is such a good point that anyone can call that number, honestly, to get connected. And, and uh, you should have a local rape crisis center as well if you're tuning in from, you know, not in central Florida. Um, and they, you can talk to a victim advocate and see, you know, I just want to know how to be a good supporter. So, um, you know, avoiding those victim blaming questions and, and things like that. And going off of that, what are some things that, you know, you mentioned reframing questions, but what are some things that we should say to a survivor going beyond reframing questions? I think one of the most important things, as we talked about earlier, is that fear of not being believed. So just saying, I believe you, 
you know, I, I believe this happened. It's not your fault. You're not alone. How can I support you? And then again, going back to your last question um, that Rhonda touched on, you know, reaching out to your local program. And in, in these situations, information is power. So if you can get the information for your friend who's a survivor and provide them with the information, that's going to help them feel like you're someone who's going to support them and be there for them and provide them with information and not pass any judgment and allow them um, the opportunity to take that control back in their lives to make the decision that's right for them. So um, all of those, I think, are, are good things. Absolutely. Is there anything you want to add on to that, Rhonda? Yeah, Melissa touched it. She That's exactly what you do, you know, and, and like I said, if all else, you know, call your local rape crisis center uh, helpline and we will guide you through that through that process. Absolutely. And I think that I would just add to that, you know, just simply listening and giving the survivors space as well and having them share whatever they're comfortable with sharing. And I always like to say if, if a survivor ever discloses to you a history of sexual assault or sexual abuse um, or that they're going through it right now, uh, you're a really special person <laughs> to this individual um, and you should honor that story and, and know that they saw you as a safe person. And so reacting responsibly is super integral and, and just know that whatever you are to that person, remain being that person. If they're, you're their loved one, remain being their loved one. And just know that, um, you know, we just talk about all the different barriers that survivors face when they, you know, share their story and reporting and all that. So they overcame all of that to share it with you because they, you felt like a safe person to them. So so kudos to you if someone does share that. And then um, I, I love the tips that we can, you know, share as well. And then of course, reaching out, that's, that's a great option too, to see what are the things that I can do to be a better supporter to this person. Um, so before we sign off, I think that's a great place to sign off. Um, but before we do, is there anything you would like to bring up that we may not have covered? Or is there anything that you would like to say to the survivors out there? We're here for you. We're here for you all over the state of Florida. We have 31 programs that are standing ready to, to talk to you and support you. And you're not alone. We're here for you at any time. We have 24 hour, seven days a week support lines for you. And to add to that, if you can't find your the local number, you can always call us. I know Emily, you will give them our phone number and we can guide you. We, we, we will either help you through the process, explain the process, or we'll get you your local rate crisis center number. Absolutely. And um, thank you so much for being here, both of you. And thank you for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. The VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear and you are not alone. And thank you so, so much, Melissa and Rhonda, for joining me today. Thank you for having me.